Our Old Testament lesson is Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12, which will be found on page 841 in our Pew Bibles. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you for the many good gifts that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, which we have uh, to read, to learn, to be instructed, so we can know uh, your heart. And Lord, we thank you for your word made flesh in the person of Jesus, or that we can know your life. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us, help us to hear your word, help us to understand, help us to be transformed by your word and by your spirit in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, for he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Turning into our New Testament lessons from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is actually kind of an odd place to end the reading, so if you want to just carry on reading after I stop, that's fine. This is uh, a letter that Peter writes, the disciple of Jesus, um, years after his resurrection, as the churches are facing uh, difficulty and hardship and persecution. And here's how he begins his letter to them. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
As we begin this morning, uh, looking at our sermon text of the day, which is John eleven forty-five through 57. Uh, I want to briefly talk about uh, plot and the way that it typically works. In this works in novels, it works in movies, it works in plays. We see this all over the place. And uh, the way that it typically works is there's something that happens at the beginning that kind of sets the stage and lets us know what's going on. And then if you skip all the way to the end, you see that there's some sort of resolution and that, uh, but that, that things are different now. And so how it starts at the beginning and how it start, ends at the end, there's been some sort of a change, and that has taken place through this whole middle part. And so it's typically uh, kind of drawn out as some sort of a you know, bell curve or a mountain sort of thing where you kind of, as things happen and progress, you kind of go up and there's this rising tension and then a climax and then the resolution at the end. This is sort of how plot works. And if you didn't know that already, which I think a lot of you probably did, uh, if you didn't know that, you can start paying attention for it. You'll see it all over the place. It's kind of how this works. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at, um, at another example of the way that even in a big story, that same thing is happening a whole bunch of times all throughout the story. And so we're going to look at one of those today that is a part of uh, this whole book of John that's also a part of the whole Bible. And so uh, we're going to kind of zoom in on this one uh, section. We're going to look, we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're just going to look at the beginning and the end and see what's different. And then we'll go back into the middle and see uh, how, see what takes place at the middle that changes the beginning to the end, and then look at where we fit in all of this. That's the plan. Here we go. This is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. And just uh, setting the stage for us, uh, this comes on the heels of Jesus actually raising somebody from the dead. Uh, Lazarus was one of his friends who had been dead for four days, and Jesus goes and actually raises him back to life again. And so we pick up there, and this is sort of the response. So therefore... Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, They plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders 
that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. That's where we're ending the story for today. So where do we start at the beginning? Where we actually begin this story is picking up from uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so we begin uh, with this response of people. And so what is the response that people have? It's the same two responses we always see. Jesus says something, he does something, and there are always two responses. We see this carried forward not only in the life of Jesus, but even in the disciples as you follow through the book of Acts. They go into a place and they're preaching and their signs are performing, and there's the same two responses. What are they? Some believe, some don't. (laughs) That's it. Those are the two responses. And so that's what happens here. And that's where we begin this particular story is with this response of some people uh, believed and some did not. And if uh, we've been paying attention to this story so far, what is it that they're believing because of? It's, It's another sign, right? And so Jesus has given multiple signs, and of course, these are signs that actually point towards something. It points towards who he is and, uh, and why he's here. This is something that he has talked about a lot. And we have seen, you know, we've talked about how he says throughout the Gospel of John, I am, period, seven times throughout the Gospel. At this point, I think it's been five times thus far. But he's also said, I am, dot, 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 I am, the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or I am the gate for the sheep. Uh, I am uh, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And he said these things thus far. And so it's one, but it's one thing to say these things, to make these claims. It's another to then back them up by the things he's doing. And so when he's doing these things uh, that are actually, you know, healing people and uh, feeding people in the wilderness with not any bread, when he then raises somebody from the dead, all the things that he's doing are signs because they are actually a connection to exactly what he's saying, which is he is connected to the Father. The things he's doing are you can only do if God is doing them, right? And so the things that he's doing is backing up what he's saying, which is I am connected with the Father. And we see that kind of language a lot. Uh, out of Jesus. And then we see him doing things that he could only do if he's actually connected to the Father. And so you hear, you know, the people around who have heard what he's said and how he's connected with the Father, and there are people who are like, no, you can't say stuff like that. Kill him, you know. But there are other people who are like, I don't know, maybe he is. And then you watch the things he does, and it totally backs it up. And so they're like, okay, you know, he healed some people, and that, that seemed, you know, like maybe he really is. And you know, he fed people in the wilderness, and that sure seems pretty likely that maybe he is connected with God. But he just raised somebody from the dead. Like, who does that? God does that. That's what happens. And so there are people who see this, who have actually been paying attention to what Jesus has been saying. They see this particular sign, and they say, all right, that's it. I have now crossed this threshold of belief. I'm in. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so that's where they are. But there are others who don't. There are others whose response to him raising somebody from the dead is actually like, oh, you raised Lazarus from the dead, I'm telling. (laughs) 
what? <laughs> How is that your response? But that's the response. And so they do. They go tattle on Jesus for raising somebody from the dead. It's like, did you, did you miss that he raised somebody from the dead? Like, that was kind of a big deal, right? Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Come on, man. Okay. <laughs> so they, they go tell on Jesus for this amazing sign instead of actually paying attention to what the sign is pointing to, <laughs> who he is. But we've been seeing Jesus doing these kinds of things, saying these kinds of things. We've been seeing this response. So that, when we start out this story, it's like, okay, yeah, that's what's kind of been going on. Skip to the end. Where are we at the end of this story? Time for Passover. Well, does Jesus go to Passover? Yeah, Jesus goes to Passover. Where does he go for Passover? Jerusalem. That's where you go for Passover. It doesn't matter where you live. If you are Jewish and this time, you're going to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. This is one of the three uh, uh, feasts in the year that you go to Jerusalem for. And this is like the big one. Like you can definitely go to this. Even if you had to miss one, you definitely go for this one. And so people go and they go early to get ready and they go early to be ceremonially clean, purify themselves before it even begins to start making preparations, all that. And so they get there ahead of time from all these various places they're coming and they start looking for Jesus. He's been there before. And of course, where are they going to look for him? In the temple. Because when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes to the temple. And what does he do in the temple? Teaches. This has been his, uh, his pattern. And so people come from all over. They go to Jerusalem, and they've been hearing these things about what all this man has been doing. Maybe some of them have seen it before, heard from him before. And so they go to Jerusalem, and they're looking around in the temple. He's not there. And they start asking each other, what's up? <laughs> Where is he? Is he not coming? That would be weird if he didn't come. Of course he's coming, right? Right? Or has something happened? Something has happened. So that's what gets us to the, uh, to the middle part. By the way, in case you are really hanging on the edge of your seat with suspense, Jesus does go to the Passover. <laughs> that is going to happen, but not in the way that people expect. And in fact, he's going to celebrate Passover, not in the way that people suspect, expect. And the end of that Passover week is going to end in a way nobody expected. We'll get to that in time. But for now, why is it that he's not uh, openly going to Passover and showing himself to everyone? That's because of this backdoor meeting that takes place with, um, where you have the Pharisees calling a meeting of the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're all together, and it's kind of closed door, smoke-filled room kind of thing. And, uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And here we have kind of the, uh, we're going to break this down in three parts. The first part is just what the response of the Pharisees is at this point. Like what, what do they make of this whole thing? What are they afraid of? Then there's the plan of the high priest. And then there's John's commentary on what all's going on. Here we go. This is picking up in verse 47. This is the part of just what the Pharisees are making out of this and what they are afraid of. It says, uh, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now, 
Would that be a good thing or a bad thing for everyone to believe in Jesus? I mean, according to John, that would be a really good thing. That's the reason he says he writes this book at all, is so that everyone would come to know that this is who Jesus is, that everyone would believe in him, that by knowing who Jesus is, the things that he did and the things that he said, that you yourselves would believe in Jesus because he wants everyone to know and believe in Jesus. These people, though, say, if this is how it goes, if people know the things that he's doing, if people see the things that he's doing, they're all going to believe in him. And they don't think that's a good thing. And they explain why. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, we fear Rome more than we fear God. And ironically, you fast forward a few years, and Rome did come and take away their temple and their nation in 70 AD. And so that's not something they were able to prevent, even through their scheming. What's also interesting in what they say is if we let him go on like this, come on. (laughs) You think it's really up to them as to what Jesus does or doesn't do? Do they think they have it in their power to stop Jesus from what he's going to do? No, but that's the way they see it. And so they're like, we can't let him go on like this. We're going to have to do something. There's a wonderful uh, song that shows up in uh, the What's in the Bible with Buck Denver videos. It's a kid's song, and, but it's, it's lovely. Uh, and it begins by saying, uh, you can't stop a train by standing in the tracks. You can't uh, stop an avalanche by yelling, hey, turn back. And standing in the way of what God is going to do will be very, 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 very not so good for you. <laughs> it's lovely. And, um, and of course, it concludes by saying, you know, he's got a great rescue plan, and we can't stop that either, and isn't that a good thing? Um, but they don't understand that at this point. They think that they are the ones with the power. They think they can do something. And so we're going to get together, and we're going to conspire, and we're going to plot, and we're going to solve this thing, this problem of, uh, of Jesus. But we just read in Psalm 2. Do you remember that? This is one of the foundational Psalms. Like everybody should know in, uh, at that time and place, especially everyone who's part of the Sanhedrin, like especially as Pharisees, the chief priests, they should know Psalm 2, and they should know it cold. Like they should absolutely know this one. Do you remember how it began? Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? <laughs> Their plots aren't coming to anything. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And what is the response in heaven? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Like, you really think you can stop me? Come on. That's like holding your hand up to an avalanche and saying, oh, no, no, go back. That's not convenient for me right now. It's not going to work. We're dealing with a very, very different scale of, uh, of power and authority. They should know this. And yet, here they are conspiring and plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. Because, like I say, 
They fear Rome more than they fear the Lord. So that's where they are as a group. But then the high priest, the high priest gets up and he he has a plan. He is going to make sense of all this for all of them, right? Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Good first point, which is true. They apparently know nothing at all. We'll see if he does much better. Verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. There you go. There's his plan. And the way that he looks at this whole situation is like the philosophical trolley problem. You know this one? The trolley problem of, you know, if you've got uh, the trolley going down the tracks and there's somebody on the track, but there's nobody on the other track, you know, would you switch it? Of course you'd switch it so nobody dies. But wait, what if there is, uh, you know, there are five people on the other side and now do you go and have it kill the one person or do you have it kill the five people? It's a terrible problem they even have to think about. And, uh, but it's this whole philosophy of trying to, you know, justify when do you, uh, you know, how do you prioritize uh, the life of the few over the life of the many? Or the, how, how do you do that? How do you work that out? And then, of course, there's always the twist of, and, the uh, you know, the one that is, um, you know, you say, oh, let's just kill a single person. Well, that's actually your own child. Now what do you do? It's like, ah, quit talking to me about this problem. <laughs> this, is, this is horrible. Um, but that's kind of the way that it seems that Caiaphas is doing this whole thing. He's doing this mental math on the thing and saying, look, Y'all are concerned that Rome is going to come in and destroy all of us. But we don't need to do that. We can just let Rome kill one of us. And if just kills the one, then everybody else is fine. Just do the math. It's simple, right? And they say, great point. (laughs) And so if you skip down uh, to the verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now, this is a big change in this whole story, that at this point they're plotting to take his life. And you say, wait a second. They've actually tried to kill him already on numerous occasions, and that is true. So what is the difference now? The difference is a difference between second-degree murder and first-degree murder. What they've had so far is there were times where he would say something or do something and it would just make them so mad. They're like, let's stone him right here on the spot. We're going to kill him because they're just so upset. But, you know, then things cool off and (laughs) they still don't like him, but they're not trying to kill him anymore. And at this point, it shifts. It's no longer kind of this crime of passion. Now it becomes premeditated conspiracy we're going to make sure he dies. We are going to kill him one way or another. This is going to happen. And of course, they make this plot. They conspire together against the Lord and his anointed because of the words of the high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the role of the high priest, it never seems like the role of the high priest is to tell people 
to conspire against the Lord and his anointed. (laughs) That is not the role of the high priest. The priest himself is supposed to be the mediator between God and the people, representing God to the people and the people to God. This high priest, unfortunately, like many high priests, falls short of what they're supposed to be and doing what they're supposed to do. And of course, that goes all the way back to Aaron, the first of the priests who, when Moses is on the mountain for 40 days, what does he do? Hey, let's build some golden calves. This has been a problem throughout the priesthood. And, uh, and yet, God continues to work through these priests. And this is where the commentary comes in that John gives us on what he said here and what that really means. Verses 51 and 52, it says, He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. In other words, the things that he is saying, he is saying for not good reasons. And yet, John says, as high priest, he was still prophesying. He was still saying what was going to actually happen. He just didn't understand it himself. He had no idea. When he said earlier, you know nothing at all, (laughs) he's pretty close to that himself, isn't he? He did not know that when he said, better for one person to die for the nation than for us all to die, that's exactly what was going to happen, but not at all in the way he meant it. He thought the threat was Rome instead of the threat being sin and evil and death. Jesus was not going to die so the people didn't get conquered by Rome. They were going to get conquered by Rome anyway. Jesus was going to die so that we wouldn't be conquered by sin and death and evil. That's what Caiaphas is actually talking about. He has no idea that's what he's talking about. There's another part of this, though, where the, uh, the mental math he was doing on this thing, Jesus does the same kind of mental math. But they approach it, the problem very differently. And here's, here's how. Um, the way that Caiaphas looks at it is if there's a threat to somebody else or there's a threat to me, well, let's take out the somebody else <laughs> so that I'm okay. Jesus' way of looking at this is if there's a threat to somebody else, or there's a threat to me, I will lay down my life so they can be free. That's a very different way of approaching the same problem, isn't it? A very different way. And in fact, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 10. So we're looking, you know, chapter earlier. Uh, The reason my father, this is verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. We see this again later uh, in, uh, in the upper room dialogue that Jesus has with the disciples where he says, um, Greater love has no one than this and to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is where Jesus is heading 
uh, later in this Passover week. But it's also what has been set in motion because he went and raised Lazarus from the dead. There is a connection that happens here where when Jesus goes to the tomb and he weeps, partly he is weeping with those who are weeping. Partly he is weeping because of the effects of sin and death in this world. And I think partly he's weeping because he knows that it is in this moment of raising Lazarus that he is laying down his life. Once he raises Lazarus from the dead, things change. The people began to conspire and plot, and it becomes no longer a crime of passion, of you know, wanting to kill him in this moment, but it is a decision that they make together. This is a plot from now on. This is uh, what is going to take place. We are going to kill him. But they are doing this because Jesus is willingly laying down his life for the good of Lazarus, for the good of Martha, for the good of Mary, and for the good of all of us. Jesus lays down his life. Now, here's, here's where this really hits home for us. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. If you flip forward in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the author there tells us that Jesus is really our high priest. That Jesus is our high priest. And that, um, and that he is a priest not like all the other priests who have come before. The priests who have come before are not perfect. And so they have to sacrifice for their own sins before they can sacrifice for the people. But that's not where Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the one who sacrifices actually himself for us then calls us to follow him and so here's like i say this is where it comes home for us is we have an option we have an option of which kind of priest we're going to follow are we going to follow the caiaphases in our world or are we going to follow jesus who is the true high priest. This takes us back to the beginning of what we talked about this morning. There are the two responses. There are those who see what Jesus, hear what he says and see what he does, and they believe. And there are those who see, hear what he says and see what he does, and their hearts are too hard, and they do not receive it. They just go tell on him. There are plenty of people Leaders in our world, those who are leaders, those who want to be leaders, who do the math the same way Caiaphas does the math. And what I'm saying is Jesus has a very different math. His is not the way of making sure that we stay safe by killing someone else. But instead, his is the way of laying down our own lives for the good of of others. It is backwards from the ways of this world. But as he has, as he will say later, he keeps saying, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way of Caiaphas is not the right way. It's not what's true, and it doesn't lead to life. And when we look at the end of the story and the way that it goes, 
Caiaphas is not able to achieve what he's trying to achieve. Jesus is. <laughs> his way looks backwards and it looks completely upside down from the ways of the world. And yet, his way is actually the only way that really works. And it's so counterintuitive to us unless we're following him and genuinely believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do and that he really is the way and the truth and the life. But those are options. Do we follow Caiaphas? Or do we follow Jesus? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for all that you have made. We thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that uh, your word would not, would not be snatched away like seed planted or sown on a hard path. Lord, we pray that it would not wither like seed that is sown in rocky places, that when trouble or persecution comes because of your word, we pray that our roots would be deep. We pray that your word would not be choked out in our lives like seed sown among thorns where the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth make the word unfruitful. But Lord, we pray that your word would be like seed planted in good soil, producing a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. Or as it works its way deep into our hearts and lives and grows and changes us and changes everything. Pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.